0: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org, and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, really happy to see so many folks here. Uh, for how many people is this the first time that you're at the socialism conference? Wow, that's like almost the entire room. That's awesome. Uh, is this is actually, I think, my ninth socialism conference. Obviously, well, just to say, I think you know, it's always like such a formative experience uh, to talk about different questions around different political subjects, different topics, you know, throughout history, throughout international movements, uh, you know things like talking about the labor movement so it's always such a great experience. So I think you know, thank you all so much for choosing our talk to be one of the first ones that you experienced at the conference. Uh, I also uh, my name is Carlos Enriquez and I'm a socialist activist organizer based in Chicago. Um, I think that's enough waxing poetic about the conference. This is Oscar Sanchez. Uh, he's an incredible organizer. Uh, he's also an even better person, and he's also very handsome. Uh, you can't talk through the mask, but <laughs> I want to make sure that I beat him to that. I want to make sure that I beat him to that. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, we want to definitely. Um, we're going to have like Em said a presentation, and then we definitely want to have enough time to hear from all of you all, whether it's questions about our our, our fight or whether it's uh, sharing about struggles that you've taken part of, because uh, that's how we win, right? By making connections, by forming solidarity. Um, but yeah, so this talk is, uh, is titled, uh, What Chicago Fought Environmental Racism and Won. And so we're going to be looking at a, a very specific fight uh, that happened uh, in the southeast side of Chicago, um, you know, when, when the community took on a notorious polluter, um, sort of like to show a kind of snapshot of what environmental racism looks like. Um, and, and you know what, what the fight for environmental justice is, right? So we'll, we'll be using those terms, environmental racism, environmental justice, a lot, and we'll we'll get into them a little bit more. But we'll be using that as a kind of a snapshot of those of those topics. But we uh, we definitely want to hear from all of y'all, especially if you're from outside of Chicago, uh, about any fights that you've been involved with around, against environmental racism, um, both as a way to. to you know, stay informed, uh, like on our side, um, but also making connections. Like I said, drawing parallels between different struggles uh, and, and I think most importantly, to be able to set the groundwork uh, for solidarity between different struggles um, and we'll, we'll certainly get into it a lot more, but uh, without the support and solidarity that we were able to, to gain throughout our fight, uh, we, I think we would be telling a much different story about what happened. Uh, so just wanted to you know, throw that out there. Um, And if if you're here, I'm assuming that means that you at least are a little familiar with the concept of environmental racism, Uh, but I still wanted to give a a kind of quick refresher on what that means, at least what that means to us. Um, And so by environmental racism, uh, we're referring to the fact that communities of color and indigenous communities uh, face a disproportionate amount of the impact of of pollution uh, as, as opposed to, you know, white counterparts. Uh, And essentially, uh, what this does is it it creates uh, what many in the movement refer to as sacrifice zones. That's a term that we're going to be using a lot is is sacrifice zone. Um, And so this plays out in many ways, uh, whether it's proximity to industrial facilities uh, and the impact that it brings to uh, air quality, which will be, you know, that's going to be sort of the, the focus of our talk. But it could also look like, you know, communities dealing with landfills um in their backyard and dumping hazardous chemicals uh you know uh the the actual the environmental justice movement many people trace it back to uh, the 1982 struggle in warren county north carolina against a toxic landfill and there's many many stories similar to that uh you know there's there's ways in which a failure of maintaining infrastructure can then lead to catastrophes like, like a drinking water crisis, which you know we actually have in Chicago. Obviously, the trillion dollar catastrophe in Flint. And folks may have heard uh, that it was announced in Jackson, Mississippi because of failure of infrastructure, for, because of failure of, of dealing with floods in, in a way that actually protected communities, they have a uh, drinking water crisis as well. Uh, it could also look like, um, you know, uh, it can look like uh the the pipelines, oil pipelines that uh like, like Enbridge line three or like the Dakota Access pipeline that carry some of the dirtiest forms of fuel and just de- destroy entire ecosystems. Anytime there's a spill and these spills happen every single time uh, these pipelines are disproportionately uh, impacting indigenous communities, right? Uh, It can also look like proximity to highways, uh, the the, impact of car traffic, of trucking activity, of diesel fuel, which a lot of times you don't really think about when you think about environmental racism. Uh, It could look like a lack of transportation or a lack of resources, uh, communities that have to deal with food insecurity. Um, It can also manifest in policy, such as the legacy that uh, redlining and housing segregation placed, especially uh, with current zoning and land use laws that systematically turned communities of color into the sacrifice zones that I mentioned. Um, So all that is to say that it's worth pointing out that although some of these terms uh, like environmental racism and environmental justice trace to 40 or 50 years ago, that these fights have been around for much longer than that. Uh, and like I said, although we'll be using, we'll be, we'll be talking about this campaign uh, as one example, there are countless of active environmental justice fights uh, in, in the country right now. And they might have different you know, targets, right, like one may be a polluting company, one may be a corrupt administration, sometimes you get a little bit of both, right? Uh, but all of these fights are connected, uh, and there's plenty of parallels that you can see throughout, and all of them are a direct result of what it means to live under a capitalist society. Um, okay, so I'm gonna pass it to, to Oscar, so you can hear a little bit more about him, uh, about this campaign, about you know what, like how environmental racism manifests itself, uh, and I think ultimately, you know, talking about our tactics, our strategies, our successes. Uh, this is, you know, this is a good story. Like this is, you know, we have a happy ending to the folks too, and and also uh, ultimately uh, how we got to the point that we're at today. Uh, so. You know, I'll, I'll be back in a bit, but, uh, you know, we're going to get it up Oscar right now.
2: You're not going to leave me alone, right? No, I'll be, no, here. Okay, I'll be I'm a very shy person, <laughs> though. I know you know that right now. Yeah. Do I
0: need
1: my phone? <laughs> I don't know.
2: No, Alright, all my name is Oscar Sanchez. How are y'all doing today? Yeah. Wow, I, I'm a, I asked a question. I got to hear it. Is that a good sign, Carlos? I think so. Oh my gosh, I love y'all so much. I mean that, right? I think before we get started, we have to talk about intentionality. We have to talk about what does it mean to create solidarity amongst others? What does it mean to go beyond status quos and about standards and about irregularities, right? We're considered irregular for wanting to tackle a system that constantly harms us. But what is normal about a system that constantly harms us? What is normal about a system that constantly is hurting our loved ones, ourselves, and other marginalized communities? What is normal about that? Yeah. So I wanna say thank you for answering that question. That was a question. It wasn't rhetorical, I promise you. I might give some humor if you laugh. It'll help my self-esteem. Uh, but I will not give too much humor because humor is like salt. It's good sometimes, not all the time. But it's good on wounds. It's, hey, healing, part of healing is humor. I will let, let you know that right now. But I want everybody to close. I promise I'm not going to make you meditate, but I want everybody to close their eyes, except for the, the, the young woman or individual who's walking. I don't want you to fall, please. So everybody close your eyes. And I want you to understand that we are going to talk about very traumatic things. So if you have to leave the room for any reason, please leave. If, you know, we, this is a conversation about environmental racism, racism, and racism. capitalism is not, you know, a topic without trauma. So, so everybody close your eyes. So when I was young, I want you to picture a, a child and his child's fussing and crying and he's getting put into a car and he's asking why. He's like, why? So just picture this in your head, why? And we're driving for hours on end. Imagine this kid just fussing, fussing, crying And his pants. We're, we're driving to make sure you get the help you need. And he's like, why do we have to travel so far for the resources we need? And he's yelling, why is it the resources we need are not in the communities that need them the most? That's my younger brother. You can open your eyes now. I want you to really think about that traumatic moment. I was around nine when he was asking this question, why is it the resources that we need the most, are not in the communities that we need the most? And he was five years old when he had to be wearing a mask to sleep for five years so he could be able to breathe at night. And it's not uncommon for the Southeast side to have these respiratory issues, but is it normal? It's normal because you have normalized it, but there's nothing normal about telling a child we have to drive two hours for him to get the respiratory needs he has to receive to live. Imagine a child not being able to breathe for a week at night and his mother panicking every single night. And in Spanish the word is my my, my it's it's a it's a term of endearing, but she uh, my mother it's, it's a term called Viejo, Viejo, no respira in in English it means it, it, it translates to old man, but that's what you call your partner, who's male, um, basically she's like, old man, old man, he's not breathing. But it's nothing funny. Like, we, I want people to laugh. You can laugh, it's okay, I promise you. Um, but that was an experience at nine years old, trying to see my parents, barely trying to have my brother alive for a week. And he's still with us, and I'm really happy to have that. He's one of my biggest joys in the world. And I will say this again, this story is full of trauma, but this story is full of joy. This war is full of victory. Um, and again, it's because of the people power that's built, and we're here to tell that story. So thank you for closing your eyes. So back to the Southeast side. And we have to talk about that. Because when I tell you to close your eyes and talk about why the resources not here, that's the sentiments we had during the pandemic. When this pandemic first started, it, it was a shit show. And we have to be very honest that. It, I'm, when I say South Center I'm referring to Chicago specifically, but our safety nets are not meant to work. Our safety nets are there to distract us, to say we're barely surviving, that's okay. And many of you who have this experience, I want you to be very honest, right? Many times we ask ourselves, what is the minimum I need to survive? That's not normal. I need you to forgive yourself for many of the things you've, had, alas, you, you've allowed yourself to do because of just trying to survive. But these moments are not normal and i promise you they're not normal and it's okay to have grace for yourself it's okay to have grace for others but it's under the conditioning of capitalism that we have to understand we need something different so this pandemic what happened on the southeast side this is important to talk about the momentum of building power in any type of movement we talk about what does it mean to address the needs of the community the southeast side all the leaders and everybody I looked up to went on a Zoom call, and I was invited, and I kid you not, everybody was, everybody was crying. Everybody was crying, and I'm there sitting on my computer looking at the screen of people like I'm looking at you, and they're saying, what are we going to do? I was raised on food pantries. I was raised on thrift stores. I was raised by my neighbors taking care of me. I was raised by my parents driving to make sure I stayed like a week at my godmother's and my grandmother's house while they had to work day and night. So then I was scared and I was like, someone has to say something. Someone who was crying saying, what happens if they were a single mother said, what happens if I die? They said, I have respiratory issues. I already am at risk of dying without this pandemic. Who's gonna take care of my children if I die? Who's gonna take care of my children if I get COVID? So I'm gonna make you feel the silence that I already felt in that moment. That feeling of tension is what we felt because nobody had an answer. So then I got off mute because I'm always known for the guy being bold as hell the person is being bored i'm like and i was like you know what i want to say this i'm like you know what we're, we're going to take care of each other like we always do you know we're going to be there for one another and everybody's like oh, what, what does that even mean i'm like what does it mean it means you know if you get COVID, or if something happens to you we're going to make sure that you get groceries we're going to make sure that you get the help treatment you need we have health professionals on this call we're going to take care of each other because we don't have the same safety nets that other people do we don't have the finances We don't have the resources, but we have one another. And that's something my mother always told me growing up. There's a saying she said in Spanish, she would say, no tenemos mucho, pero al mínimo tenemos uno al otro. And it means we don't have much, but at least we have each other. So what did we do? We started maintaining food pantries. We were helping eight food pantries. We're at eight food pantries about each of them. Think about it, we're at eight food pantries. We're at eight food pantries a week trying to maintain. We are trying to make sure everyone had volunteers. We were working with local health professionals either the clinics or some community members who were health professionals organizing panels. And things started looking really good. Everybody was like, wow, we're, we're doing this. We're surviving. But it's not normal. Let me just emphasize this again. We went from 200 community members attending a food pantry weekly to then 800 community members attending a food pantry weekly. This is poverty. This is the byproduct, and this is the product of capitalism, mm-hmm. a dependency on the system. If you have to depend on the system, you have to ask yourself, in this specific way that is not is not—is going to put you in a hole that you cannot escape, is not normal. I'll stop saying, no, no, I'm sorry. But we survived. And I think I'm going to put that word very clearly survived. But I think that's the beautiful part. You saw these holistic relationships. You had community members talking with one another and everybody can tell me, why do you talk so highly of the pandemic at some joyous moment. I know what it means to lose someone in the pandemic. I lost my grandfather. And one of the last things my grandfather told me before he died, uh, he, he asked me, are you happy being here in America? And I'm like, well, at least I have my needs met. And he's like, well, my children are here living a better life. My children back home are not even surviving anymore. That's the reality of imperialism as well. And we have to be very honest about these responses. So, we were getting by, and again, let's be very honest, we were making sure people's needs were being met. We were talking to more people, we were creating systems of care, we were having people call each other, check in. We were doing every single thing that we should be expected, right? Why is it so hard to create a system where you check in on elderly folks just to make sure they're okay why is it so hard to be checking in on youth why is it so hard to be checking in on teachers or parents it it should be easier it should be a system of care again so but we've developed this and i think that's the most important part is that we started this system and then we have to be very honest about the tragic death the murder of george floyd
1: mm-hmm.
2: right we have to always say it was the murder of george floyd And that sparked conversations in the east side about what is racism in the southeast side. And let me tell you about the southeast side. It is a community that is proud, as great, as heart, but it's been conditioned to believe that. It's been conditioned to believe many falsehoods and ideologies that are not beneficial to itself. In the 1940s, if you're going on a highway, or 1950s, apologies. Um, if you went to a highway, you would, does, anybody, does anybody know what, what a sundown town is? Raise your hand if you do. All right. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, the sundown town is, if you're a person of color, specifically a black individual, if you're in a sundown town, you wouldn't make it out alive. You would die. And the sun, in the southeast side, there's a highway it had a banner that said, if you're an N-word, this is a sundown town and you will die. That was in our highway. even even when it comes to any public spaces. There was one time where a black family moved into the east side during the the 70s, and what happened to that family is they burned down their garage, and then their community members told them to leave. Same thing with Hegwish. Hegwish is a predominantly white ownership community where, again, you don't have issues against anybody being white. It's about, we have an issue against white supremacy. Let's just be very clear about poverty. We're facing the struggle together, poverty and racism is very much aligned and I'm preaching to the choir I know so I appreciate you all but moving forward was the death of George Floyd and it sparked the question what is racism here in the southeast side and we won't tolerate this so you specifically spoke up and said we have to make a statement we have to make a statement that black lives matter here in this community regardless of and not regardless acknowledging all the past ways that the southeast side has harmed black individuals we have to make a mark so we held a Black Lives Matter march down one of the largest commercial districts on Commercial Avenue with over 500 individuals. This was done by youth. This was organized in two days. And again, you had a community that was very much prominently racist, have 500 community members come out and spend in solidarity. And I think that's one of the most beautiful parts that we can talk about. Moving forward, we did more rallies and more protests in marches specifically, and teaching and saying, what does it mean to be in a capitalist system that racism that is that racism is used as a tool for capitalism and i think that's where i started questioning more of this and we started asking when what other ways could is there racism and that's where a lot of our mentors said well have you heard about environmental racism i know we're talking about the word environmental justice but environmental justice is about making sure there is justice for the burdens that are a tactic of environmental racism environmental racism is fighting racism you have to be very clear when we talk about environmental justice, we're talking about diminishing and getting rid of racism because that is the end goal and be all for liberation for our comrades, brothers, siblings, brothers sisters, and siblings. So then we talked about it. What is the history? For folks that are not from Chicago or folks that know about the steel mills, in the 1930s, there was a steam mill in the Chicago River. There's two rivers. If you know the Chicago flag, there's two blue colors on the flag. There's a stripe, stars, another stripe. Please don't be offended by how you describe the Chicago flag. But those two stripes represent the Chicago River and the Cayenne River. The Chicago River is the river on the north side. The Cayenne River is the river on the south side. And in the 1930s, there was a steel mill in the Chicago River, and Chicago was not yet developed completely. And then individuals of high income came into the area and said, we don't want this steel mill. It's blocking our view of the lake. So what had happened to that steel mill there's already some steel mills in the southeast side there's about one or two so in the 1930s what they did is they moved that steel mill from the chicago river down to the southeast side and around that time the 1930s were also the racist housing practices that were already doing the city was already pushing specifically when it came to the real estate um, corporations they put together a map that told told the story about the most valued parts of chicago and the least valued part of chicago and if you're black or if you're brown or if you're poor, your communities will labeled as F for you do not matter in the state of Chicago. And you're not gonna have anything else. I mean that when play, that's basically what it was stated. And A meant you're white and you're rich and you like you and you wanna make sure you get the resources. And I wanna emphasize that 1930s map is still the map we live here in Chicago. When we wanna talk about respiratory issues. When we wanna talk about our health. The worst cases of our health when it comes to the worst cases of poverty, when it comes to who is living there, when it comes to the, the proximity and density of black individuals and brown individuals, when we talk about where are the worst heat waves, where we're talking about where are the worst flooding, where we talk about the lack of infrastructure and the lack of care, it's the same map mm-hmm. since the 1930s. So, what happened? Then there my neighbors were talking, then our um mentors are talking about General Iron. They said there's a company coming from the north side the southeast side. This is a metal shirting company coming from Lincoln Park, a white affluent community who is, has high income down to the southeast side who is predominantly poor, black, and brown. Right? Same story as always. Not? Nah? And we said, fuck that.
1: Oh, wait, Carlos, can I Yeah. You, you can swear. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> of can everybody say
2: fuck that? Okay, can we say fuck that? <laughs> Sorry, I was having a photo check for a while kind of came out. So then they said, hey, this process started in 2018 and they brought got brought up back in 2020. And they said, hey, you're gonna have this coming to your community. They didn't have a community participatory development. They didn't ask members what they wanted. They said this is coming to your community. Right? And that community in the north side, it's already rich and high income, right? My bad for tedious words. But what they said is that this community here in the north side, they're also going to get $1.6 billion in subsidies. This is during a pandemic. And they said this, in the southeast side, you're getting a metal shredding company who historically had violations, and historically the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, had written up violations against them. But what are the protections for community members? So we're outraged. We're outraged so much. What does it mean to be protected? What does it mean to be safe when it comes to our own local politicians? So we protested. We're fucking angry. We went in marches to make sure that black lives matter, but what about the community members that also mattered? It was those black, brown, and poor individuals here and it's the intersectionality of all these issues. Another example of this is in the 1937 map um, Memorial Day Massacre, where union indiv- where union members accompanied by a, a actual like neighboring statewide coming together to make sure that we have better living conditions. And who was there defending these, these industries? Police. And then they killing ten individuals. So it's the repetition of these stories over and over and over again and it's the frustration and it's the anger so what did we do we protested our, our local politician a local water woman we protested the mayor we were sick of being a sacrifice song what does it mean to look around the community and all you see is garbage we talk about our mental health we talk about stress in our bodies What happens when you literally are not able to get to your job or get to a a house service or get to where you need to get to because you have a bridge going out? There's five bridges in that community that all are lined up for industry. What happens when our needs are being put aside for industry literally and figuratively all the time? So we said no. And we're demanding, we need a process. We need this to be denied because enough is enough. How is this going during a global pandemic that affects people with respiratory health issues? When our community has one of the worst respiratory health rates in Illinois, in Chicago, that's unacceptable. Sorry, that's my mom. Hello. (laughs) you have to know how much I love y'all, because I missed out eating food with her right now. She's like, she's like, hey, she called me before I got I was up on the elevator. And she's like, Nico, where are you? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to speak at Socialism 2022. And she's like, oh, like, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, I did tell her. <laughs> she's like, I'm like, you don't listen. She's like, I did listen. I make mac and cheese, and I made some fresh fried chicken for you. And I'm like, Shh. so I'm going to go out <laughs> afterwards. If you have questions, ask the panel. <laughs> Um, so that, that's the realistic, that's, that's, that's the reality here in the Southeast, stuff. but we fought. We did marches, but then we created our own town hall. We did many town halls, and at the beginning of them, we had 100 members coming out to the first one. And at the end of 20, the end of 2020, December, we had over 500 community members saying they don't want this polluter coming to our community. So we did things, and I'm, I'm not here to say what's right or wrong, right? I'm here to say we need to make sure that we demand our voices are heard, whether if it's town hall meetings or protests, we need to make sure we are heard. The community members are like, well, we're, you're, you're not doing things the right way. You're not hearing us. And we're like, okay, come to the community town hall meetings. And at the end, when over 500 community members came out and we didn't feel heard, we then protested Lori Lightfoot. I mean, literally half of the community coming because they knew, they knew we were being silenced. They knew that this was a facade. They knew that the illusion of community process was just a way to make us be quiet. Mm-hmm. So then let's continue this story. What I wanna do before I even continue the story is that how we had so much youth involved, they themselves removed service resource officers from their school, from the local high school, if you know what that is. Yep. They took, they got rid of police officers from their high school. We are part of that campaign. It's also talking about, they, their question was, what does it look like to have safety in high school? What does it look like to have safety in education? And then that question became, what does it look like safety in our community in the same way? So I always wanna give love to all those youth who you know are some of the bravest people we'll ever meet. And I always say this, youth are going to be the answer to us because they can see the world without capitalism. I mean, I know we've been conditioned to it, but they really know how to be imaginative. They really have the imagination to see this world for what it should be. But let's continue. This was not the end of 2020. It was December. We had over 500 community members saying no to this polluter. And then they came. But the city came to us like, hey, we're going to delay this process. The application just for General Iron was 256 pages. And they said, we want you to still give commentary to this application. And then they hit us up with, like, hey, you know the application that we delayed? And, you know, we get ready to give you some time. Yeah, we have a new application for y'all. It's 1,256 pages. And we're going to give you two weeks to respond to this. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know about you. And if you think I'm very smart, I very much appreciate you. I don't know if I look like an engineer to you, but I'm not an engineer. So what do we do Again, it's that panic. Again, it's not knowing what to do. It's doing, imagine this, countless protests, countless marches, countless people on these calls, saying, we don't want this polluter. And then they're saying, look and review. We want community members to review this application. 1,256 pages. Two weeks. What do we do? Still a pandemic. People are dying. It was December my grandfather died. It was December and a lot of our comrades died. A lot of people in previous um, movements where EJ had passed away. So there's a question, what do we do? And this is the hardest of silence. And I always say this: Chicago is a beautiful fucking city. Chicago is a beautiful city not because of these fucking capitalists. Chicago is a beautiful city, first of all. But Chicago is a beautiful city because of black folks. I normally say that. And if anybody wants to argue with me, I, I, one, one thing I just gotta say is Chicago house music. <laughs> and if you don't know what Chicago house music is, I'll make some time to talk to you. <laughs> but the reason Chicago is so beautiful is because you know the labor movement here in Chicago, people didn't take shit, mm-hmm. right? We don't, we don't let other people be, we don't let other people suffer. Because other people are suffering, how is that? How can I say How can I say, uh, <laughs> say loves you, but not fight for you? And that's what Chicago is. It's a city that loves its children, but at the same time, it's these policies that restrain it so much. And we look at the examples, we, we question what do we do and then we look at these amazing actions. We look at these hunger strikes. We look at the 2001 little village hunger strike. We look at the hunger strike with, you know, socialist older women to put part in before she was an older woman. Does anybody know who that is? Not from Chicago. Anybody not from Chicago know who that is? Folks from Chicago, do you know who that is? You know who that is? You wanna say who that is? No? Uh-huh. So as I mentioned, Janet Taylor. She is one of the most motherfucking badasses we have in city council and she's a socialist and she went on a hunger strike alongside other folks to prevent the closing of a high school we'd look back and look at how many schools round closed down 50, right? But think about that. How does that, how does the current mayor, one-up round Emmanuel? Like I was thinking about this, where they go, damn, like you were fucking up. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're looking at these examples, these, these these assurity examples, and we didn't take it lightly. I mean, think about that conversation. I don't know if, if, I don't know if people can tell, I'm, I'm a Latino, so I'm, I'm Mexican, and they're like, yeah, mom, um, we're thinking about maybe going on a hunger strike. And then she's serving food, and she's like, (laughs) I'm like, mom, did you hear me? She's like, I'm like, mom, did you hear me? She's like, and then she turns around, and she's crying. And she said, aren't you tired of marching? Aren't you tired of these protests? Because I'm tired of seeing you out there. And I told her, mom, I'm tired of seeing you suffer. So then we decided we got on a Zoom call. Again, we again we we had auto engineer Taylor speak to us and tell her about that how that went. And she said, if the, I believe your your cause is righteous, and, and I believe you know either with you. And that's when myself, Brianna Bertachi and Chuck Stark decided to go on hunger strike for 30 days amongst the community members it wasn't an easy decision. I want people to realize, when we talk about Chicago, Chicago has a 30-year life expectancy gap between the north and the south, Side, right? Between Streeterville and Inglewood. That's 30 years. I want you to think about folks who are, you know, younger than 30 years. Think about it. People who are older than 30 years. Think about what you could have done with those 30 years. But it's 30 years. <coughs> imagine, imagine someone telling you, you can have one more day of life. Just one day. You, how grateful would you be? Imagine if somebody told you you had 15 more days of life, six months, a year. God damn it, one more year, but 30 fucking years? So that's in the back of our minds when we talk about these systems. And that was before this pandemic. Let's, re- let's, re- let's really think about this number. 30 years before that number was the study be- taken before this pandemic. I don't want to know that number right now. But what we did with the mutual aid systems that we made and fighting this polluter was ensuring that that number didn't get larger. We weren't fighting that number. We We're making sure it didn't get bigger. I need folks to realize that. And that's not fucking normal. So we decided to go a hunger strike. And it was one of the hardest things. I, everybody wants to ask, like, how, how was it? Do you, how, what was the hardest parts about it? Um, and the hardest parts about it is, is not remembering anything. There was days where I remember I, we still had to do work. I still was working, um, I was a youth organizer and we were looking to defund, again, CPD through uh, making sure we got rid of funding for cops in schools. And one of the days I needed to get my car fixed and I tell my pops, I'm like, hey pops, can you take out the car with me? Um, I really didn't get it, get it started. It's been too long. And he's like, what are you talking about? Me and you fixed it yesterday. And I looked at him, I'm like, you're kidding me. He's like, no, me and you went yesterday and you fixed the car. We pulled it out. We made sure it was running. And all I went down and was asking me if I was messing with them. That's the realities of these things. Why is it that we have to risk everything to just be able to give, get this much? But we do it. We give everything because we we know how much we have to lose. And even if we have so little to lose, it's everything to us. What other people think is so little, to us it's everything. So if we and we did this hunger strike. And then after thirty days we had to make sure we took care of our health. So we moved forward from it. And then there was an the intervention. Um, from the federal EPA, the federal Environmental Protection Agency, and they said, "Hey, um, Mayor, we, we uh, recommend you do a health impact study or a cumulative impact study, which would have been amazing if we had that process to begin with. With well, a cumulative impact study, taking consideration is all the different operations already happening there, right? So think about this. I'll make it, I'll make this in my favorite terms from Carlos. Imagine you're in a wrestling." Imagine it's me and Carlos.
1: Where are you going with this? No, Carlos Carlos can
2: easily (laughs) take me down. But think about about it this way. So it's me and Carlos. Carlos is going to beat me, hands down, right? But then say it's me and another individual fighting Carlos. Carlos can probably take us two down as well. (laughs) But then think about three individuals fighting Carlos. You're gonna have a little bit of a challenge and then four individuals right it adds up the pollution adds up but the way the city has always seen it is saying eh, the requirements to fight carlos is you have to at least be six foot that's what he handles mm-hmm. but imagine five six foot or above handsome individuals fighting carlos <laughs> in the southeast side when we asked the city how many op- industrial operations do we have in our community they said we don't have the time and energy to let you know. So then, community members, this is some years ago. So community members in the local institution, they did this research and they found out that there were 70 different industrial operations happening in, in the Cadillac River. That includes the southeast side and that includes other parts of the neighboring communities. Seventy. Carlos, can you like so many people? No, I don't think so. No? Nah? I agree. You. Are they above
1: or under six feet tall? Oh, I know. <laughs> Six foot.
2: <laughs> that's the importance of these types of ordinances and policies that we need to ensure protections. When it came to this whole process, what does it mean to have protection and safety, like we've been talking about? So then the federal EPA ordered this, but it felt like deja vu. It was the same questions, it was the same people in the room. And then they were saying, well, do community members want this. In these meetings, they, the, 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 the company the company told its employees to come to these meetings and tell them that they wanted it here. And the, and the, and the, the company facilitating this, these meetings said, yeah, it's valid, they're part of the community. We're gonna allow these industrial employees, and we're not against them, we understand that they need to make ends meet. But in order to take those, opinions, those, those, those feedback into input about what is needed for the community, Coming from the source, coming from the person who's paying you is pretty much price. But we know it's very much clear. And we were scared again. So we did more protests and more marches. But this whole time, we had conversations with community members about what does safety look like? What does environmental justice look like? What is environmental racism here in the Southeast side? Right? The same things I'm talking to you about, we talked to every single person to make sure that they knew what was happening. Because when it comes to these educations, I know right now it's more of a monologue, and that's why I don't like lectures or whatever you want to define this, but it's about dialogue and about mutual aid, right? How can I tell you to listen to me if your needs are not being met? How can I talk to you if I'm not listening to what you want to tell me or your concerns? So a lot of this coalition that we build, this movement was built on listening and making sure people's needs and interests were being heard. So then it was February 2022 and I had to get surgery. Um, I had to get my tonsils removed. It was a pretty bad surgery. My doctor's like, You got the biggest tonsils I've ever seen in my life. And I said, Cool, can you get them out? <laughs> he said, Do you have insurance? And I said, Fuck. And then I was like, I think I do. <sighs> so it was February 18th, I'm never gonna forget it. The day before we're, we're the, they're going to announce it february 18th that's the day i got scheduled surgery the day before i'm texting everybody i'm texting dsa i'm texting uwf i'm texting all these fucking badass organizations here in chicago that hold it down and i'm saying hey we need to make sure at city hall to hold these fuckers accountable because we're, we're at that point where they're going to make sure this permit goes through and i'm texting 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 and the next day i'm like damn what do i do now i did everything i could again these fights you don't always win so you have to give yourself grace so i go there my dad comes with me doctor's like you know you're going to be okay and i'm like well there might be a polluter moving into my community so i don't know how that's going to feel he's like cool i'm like have fun and i'm like wow fuck. and i get out of surgery and then here's the doctor. He's like how are you feeling He's like, okay, you're the biggest tonsils I've ever seen. Do you wanna see them? I'm like, no. <laughs> and my dad's like, yes. He pulls them out. I'm like trying to wake up. And I'm like, Dad, can I get my phone? My dad's like, I see my phone, I see all these texts on my phone, and I'm like, damn. I can see where I, I can't see far, I can't see I can see near. So I'm looking at my phone, I'm like, damn. And then my dad's like trying to put the tonsils in my face. And then like, lock my phone. And then the, the news is the, the permit got denied. And then I'm like, no, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet. Again, I am in the hospital. I'm high as fuck. And then I'm like, I text my best friend, Carlos. I'm like, Carlos, I'm like, I'm off. I'm like, I'm like if this isn't Carlos, I'm sorry, but I think this is Carlos, because I couldn't tell what the name was. And I'm like, I'm really fucking high right now. I just got a surgery. Is it true? And he said. Post we want to go back to that. <coughs> now you can cheer. <laughs> but that, that's the fucking story. But think about that, that was two years. That was two years of endless fighting. That was two years of, regardless of our community being a sacrifice zone, we were sacrificing ourselves to win this. Yeah, it sounds really fucking good to say, we won, And you can repeat after me when I say the people, when the people fight, the people win. So when I say the people fight, you say? The people win. When the people fight, the people win. I want them to hear us. When the people fight, the people win. When the people fight, the people win. win. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Ooh.
2: But think about it. How much do we have to give? Right? That was only one fight that Sati started going through. There's constant violence. Right? There was other, there's a currently a mining operation trying to happen there. Mm-hmm. There's currently uh, sledging, which is the, 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 the groups of sludge on their boats that they're trying to create another container community. It's not just the southeast side. There's McKinley Park, there's Little Village, there's Tilson, there's Elk Gardens. Like, no. So, what does it mean to fight environmental justice? What does it mean to fight environmental racism in Chicago? It's building a movement. It's talking about intersectionality of this. And again, I love you all and I love Chicago and I love my comrades, I love my siblings. And when I say that, that means I'm gonna fucking fight for you. And it's about intentionality. Can I tell him now or can I tell him later, Carlos?
1: Uh, you can, yeah, you can play tell him now. So,
2: because there's lack of leadership here in city council, and lack of leadership about knowing how social media here, that's why I'm running for fucking city council. <laughs> Lateral later because we're not done yet. <laughs> but your turn, clap? Yeah. Perfect. Uh, there's going to be a wrestler coming in soon. So you're, you're taking them, uh,
1: right? Yeah, as long as they're under six feet tall. Uh, can you hear PerosCat again? Uh, uh, before I bring it back to the talk, I, I also want to. Uh, Go off, go off script a little bit. Um, and for transparency' sake, uh, Oscar lives in the southeast side. I work along uh, Oscar, and I work in the southeast side. I do communications for for a number of groups down there. And when Oscar's talking about the way that you know, this was you know a year after a hunger strike, two years after these protests, we still had no idea how this was going to go. Based on you know the the, the series of engagement uh, meetings that we had with the city, like all pointed to you know. That we were going to be getting very bad news, right? So the morning of that, that Oskar talks about when we when we received the news, um, like I said, I we're in communications. So I had all these like press releases drafted about like you know we received the bad news today, but the fight continues, yeah. all of this stuff, right? And then uh, I scrapped everything. <laughs> we're going to get good news. So I was like, uh, like first I was kind of like in shock because I was just like like there was like no scenario in which we thought that we were going to be, that we were going to win. And then my next one was like, oh, okay, so now I have to write a whole new press count, or a whole new press release. Uh, but that which, was a good thing. No, It <laughs> was a great thing. That was a great thing. I was just like, oh, no, like, now I gotta get, like, I, you know, no. celebrate, I gotta celebrate, but, you know, first I gotta like, first I gotta come up with this thing, you know? Uh, but that's what, we were, that's what we were looking at. We were looking at certain lots, you know? It, there's, there was an article, that before The Hunger Strike, there was an article that uh, was published in the Sun-Times Uh, A couple of journalists were giving a tour of this facility, General Iron, of the the new facility, and the owner, the new owner of that facility, of of a company called Reserve uh, Reserve Management Group, uh, said that they were certain they were going to be getting the permit. They were, they were calling this a done deal, right? And that was what we were up against. Um, But so from the beginning of the campaign, there were two. Sorry, not just that company. Our local politician
2: this mayor, everybody said it was a done deal. Every single person said it was a done deal. So our intervention, they said, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your energy, but how could we stand aside when people were dying? But again, that same word, it was a done deal, a done deal, a done deal. But we didn't stop, Carlos, right?
1: No, uh, (laughs) we we didn't. uh, I'll bring it back to the done deal. Uh, there was like a big finale, uh, oh, hi, so thank you for, for spoiling it. Uh, <laughs> no, so, for the beginning of the campaign, we had two key questions that guided all of our strategy, uh, and that was, one, how do we force the other side to answer uh, to, to these questions on our terms, right? And the second one was, how do we strategize for all of the escalations, all the things that Oscar talked about, to match the urgency of the moment? Um, so I go ahead laid out. The proposed relocation of General Iron uh, was textbook environmental racism. A, a white affluent community in the north side was getting, you know, was getting rid of this, this this notorious polluter. It had been complained about for decades by the white residents for, you know, t- like dozens of fires, explosions. Uh, no, you know, uh, it was it was a nuisance both, you know, smells, sound, everything that you can think of. This was, this, was a, this was a company that was kicked out of the north side and was bring, being brought to a working class community of color. 80% Latinx is, is what the southeast side looks like. Uh, you know, there's no way to describe this other than environmental racism. The, every single uh, press conference that we did, every single op-ed, every interview, every protest, every chant, every, every conversation that we had with anybody about this topic we made sure that we hammered home uh, the, the line that if General Iron is not good enough for the north side, then it's not good enough for the southeast side.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: and we were successful. Anytime that this was talked about, it was under the context of environmental racism. Local news talked about this. They were forced to talk about it as environmental racism because that was the messaging that we did with every single action, every single statement that we made. Um, do you think you know Oscar already talked about it but we can't underestimate the context of of how this all took place you know uh being in the early stages of a pandemic uh, a respiratory pandemic right in a in a a community that was already overburdened by commodities by by health uh effects because of overwhelming pollution He talked about the 70 industries there's the legacy of the steel mills there uh there was fight after fight, like residents had had literally just concluded a fight against uh, the Koch brothers who were putting these piles of petroleum coke, a byproduct of tar sands oil refinery, this toxic dust that was sort of looking over the entire southeast side. If there was a windy day, everybody's windows would be covered in pet coke. Uh, little kids weren't allowed to like play baseball after dark once it would get too windy because the stuff would get in their lungs. Uh, there's a really great picture, an like iconic picture, uh, one of uh, Austrian and my own, uh, mentor, mentor uh, Peggy Salazar, who put her hand to her window after a particularly windy day and her, and her hand was covered in the black pet coat, you know, that's what people were dealing with. There was also the fact that community members had just found out a couple of years earlier uh, that there was manganese, this like toxic heavy metal in the little league parks. And this wasn't something that was told by the city, this wasn't something that was told you know, by, by the, the EPA, this was something that they found out because an investigative reporter wrote about it in the, in the Tribune, right? They fought to get that cleaned up, and there's so many other fights, right? It was fight after fight after fight. And in a pandemic, a respiratory pandemic, this, this pops up, right? Uh, there was, you know, uh, there was also the, the, the hunger strike happening in a pandemic as well. Folks like OSCAD putting li- their literal life on the line to show how stark the situation was. This was a life or death situation, and they, they they made it a life or death situation for themselves as well, right? Those things impacted the way this was talked about. Uh, the city of Chicago and you know local representatives like like Sue Garza, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, Allison Arwadi, the, the the chief of the, the Department of Public Health, did everything they could to avoid touching that subject, right? Uh, reporters would be asking them, uh, you know, about. The hunger strike, if they had any comments, they did, they did everything they could to ignore us, right? Uh, this was done in spite of these people. Uh, there's also the, the, the role that the uprising played, the 2020 uprising, like Oscar was talking about. Uh, the uprising shifted consciousness, right? It was the question the question of systemic racism uh, played a huge impact in our campaign, and folks were drawing the connections. Uh, the largest wave of protests in a generation uh, which centered on the question of police brutality and the carceral state and mass incarceration, also opened millions to different questions about how institutional racism manifests itself. Right? Obviously, the clear connection as well between students at George Washington High School, the, the only public school in, in, uh, in the southeast side, were going to be less than a mile away from this facility. Those same, those same students who, who got involved in, that, in, that, in the campaign were, you know, like Oscar said, fought and organized to get cops out of their school. And they made, they themselves, they didn't need anyone to make the connections for them. They made the connections themselves about how the the, the, the connection between between racism and police brutality and racism, uh, and, and environmental racism, right? Like folks saw these connections through struggle and then played leading roles in this fight. Uh, there's, there's gonna be, and I bring this up because I think at this conference, uh, and, and there's gonna be a lot of discussions about you know the role that the the 2020 uprising played, right? Like, what were the tangible victories, and, and all these things. There's like an open question about it, and I think that uh, at least for me, it's it's impossible to talk about the impact that the uprising had, and I think that we have yet to see the actual the actual answers uh, to that question. I think that it radicalized so many people, and this question of like tangible tangible victories, in some I think it is, is important to talk about, but in many ways. I think it glosses over the impact that it had on consciousness in more than one fight. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of mention that. Uh, I think also, you know, there's other fights, uh, high-profile fights of environmental racism in Chicago. Uh, there was the Mad Asphalt, which is a a plant in McKinley Park, which is if you're, you know, folks who are from Chicago, that's a 10-minute drive away from here, um, and there was a. This company, which uh, popped up in 2018 uh, with zero community input, that's you know, a recurring theme when you talk about pollution in Chicago, uh, is operating without a, an active permit um, and yet still uh, recently put a $500 million bid to become the, the leading provider of asphalt in, in Chicago. And what that would have meant was that if they would have gotten that contract, uh, they would have significantly increased their production. Uh, they would have. Harm the health of McKinley Park residents even more than they already do, um, and you know, uh, luckily uh, through organizing and you know, South Berrien part in that. They were able, you know, the, the the city actually canceled the contract. The plant is still there, but that was a huge victory in being able to limit the operating capacity. Right, i uh, i I think we're kind of close to where we wanted to wrap up, so um, I'll gloss over some of the other fights. But I also want to talk about the role. That solidarity played in this. You know, this campaign uh, received so much support both within the city and outside of the city, um, especially during the hunger strike. There's this question, or there's this uh, sort of tendency. For folks to sort of pit you know, labor against environmental justice activists, right? The labor versus the environment question, right? And I think in many ways that is a very difficult relationship that we do need to talk about, you know? And what does a just transition look like, right? And what do workers, what is the role of workers in a just transition? There's gonna be a lot of talks on that, um, and I recommend that folks go to them, because so, we won't be able to, to get at that exactly. But I think, you know, we were able to get dozens of labor unions to show support with this fight. Whether it was the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, teachers themselves who, 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 you know, who, who worked in the southeast side, lived in the southeast side, took part in this campaign, and either you know, uh, one, like one of the teachers actually uh, was a part of the hunger strike. Another teacher uh, engaged in civil disobedience. Uh, actually, recently, both, both of the teachers that I mentioned actually faced uh, retaliation from the city of Chicago. They attempted to fire them over their involvement in this campaign right we were able to successfully defend their jobs uh, because i think we're, we're showing that yeah. <laughs> like, really, it is is a joke that as many times as Lori lightfoot uh, takes on the southeast side and loses she's gonna have to start putting more l's in her name
0: <laughs>
1: uh, but there's also folks like sciu you know uh, uh, the nurses' union, nurses played a huge role in in, in the solidarity. Elected officials, uh, not any of the ones that we mentioned, but the socialist alders uh, that, that that we talked about showed, showed a lot of support. Um, hopefully soon we'll have another socialist elder as well. Um,
0: you
1: know, and, and and this support played a huge role in like elevating this fight. You know, this was something that was covered locally on a nightly basis, but it was also Talked about it in outlets like Vice, in the Guardian, Washington Post even came out, and we were like, you know, we gotta be careful with them. But it was like, we like made it like we were able to shape this narrative so effectively that even the Washington Post had to cover us in a positive light, right? Like that's that's pretty incredible. Um, and I also want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what it means to as revolutionaries, yeah. as as radicals, to also engage in strategies that have to do with you know whether it's like the electoral, uh, uh, you know, uh, system, or whether it's you know different tactics around around uh, federal agencies. Uh, we filed a, a civil complaint uh, against the city of Chicago through the Department of Housing and Urban Development HUD. Uh, we filed a complaint through the EPA, uh, the EPA, like Moskai like mentioned, stepped in, intervened and told the city of Chicago to delay ending this permit, right? That was huge. That, that, that completely uh, tipped the balance, uh, you know, for, for a bit there. HUD recently, you know, after, after the, the permit was denied, HUD came out and put out a statement that Chicago has been acting uh with, with policies that are considered environmentally racist like these are huge interventions that federal agencies came in and co- we're, like the momentum there well we can't talk you know we can't talk enough about how huge that was and you know as a Marxist I am someone who is skeptical of engaging in, in, in these uh in, with these agencies and, and you know with electoral politics but I think this this did show that there is there is a way to do so, uh, what, but it's only possible when you actually engage with class struggle, with movements from below, with democratic decision making from the community. That is the only way that these strategies can actually bear fruit. Yeah. Uh, I, think that's a, I, think, I think that's important. You know, the terrain under Biden administration showed that it was a little bit different from a Trump administration. That's very clear, right? But none of these things would have been possible. Without us like throwing, you know, Biden talked about, you know, having the most progressive environmental platform and making environmental uh, environmental racism a huge uh, sort of a priority. And so we were like, okay, Pat, like we're gonna make you like live up to your word, right? Uh, but that's not something that we're seeing across the board, right? I think, I think I think that's something that like that that question of how you engage with 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 electoral politics. I think it's something that has to be grounded in, in struggle, like I mentioned. Um, and it's also not as easy as saying, "Oh, we have, you know, we have our people in office, so now, so now we're going to be able to, to get things done, right?" Because the city of Chicago is the Democratic Party stronghold. The state of Illinois is under Democratic uh, uh, administration, and these are the places that we had to fight against tooth and nail every step of the way. Environmental racism. Is a bipartisan problem. So I think that, you know, I think it's, it's very <laughs> contradictory. I think that, I think it's important to talk about it in this way. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there's, there, there's like other things, that, you know, I was going to mention the different facilities that, that, that we're fighting against as well. There's also the fact that General Iron uh, is, is trying to, you know, I think they're on like their, maybe their fourth or fifth attempt at suing the city of Chicago to force. Uh, an operating permit, again, they keep losing, you know, they and Lori Lightfoot have this like weird, uh, you know, just a word obsession with, with taking else, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think what, what that does kind of show is that even the victories, right, every single victory that we get under capitalism is going to only be done so by the people fighting back. But that also means that as long as we live under capitalism, you know, a system of oppression, a system based on exploitation, uh, you know, a system based on both exploiting the working class as well as exploiting our natural resources, fracturing the relationship that we have with nature around us, any single victory that we accumulate is going to be one that we have to fight to defend. Yeah. You can look at uh, Roe v. Wade, right, and that fight, um, and how that, you know, like that's it's an, it's, it's a never ending struggle. Um, but we can win when we fight back, right? I think that is, that is the point of all of this. Um, you know, I think I'm, I'm going to start wrapping up. Um, but I think, uh, while the, while our fight against environmental, uh, racism against sterile iron prove that when the people fight, the people win, you know, this permit, like I said, was supposed to be a done deal, right? Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be a done deal until it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, a better world in which Drinking water and clean air are a universal human right is possible. You know, a better world in which environmental racism is eradicated and oppressed communities have an opportunity to thrive is possible. Uh, You know, a better world in which communities don't have to worry about starving themselves in order to fight against polluting industries is possible. But it's going to take everyone in this conference and beyond to make that world a reality. Uh, So please enjoy the rest of the conference. Looking forward to the discussion. But I really hope that everyone who isn't involved in socialist organizing or environmental organizing uh, considers
0: getting plugged in because we're going to need all of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.